Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're doing well, staying happy, healthy, and safe. A bit later on, we'll meet Canada's sharpest and funniest political satirist, Rick Mercer. His latest project is a book titled The Road Years, a memoir continued. It's a look at his wildly popular television show, The Mercer Report, its beginnings, its end, and everything in between. That's a little bit later on. First, though, help me welcome stand-up comedian Brent Butt, the star, writer, and or producer of TV shows like Corner Gas, Hiccups, and Corner Gas Animated. He recently added a new line to his resume, thriller author. His debut novel is huge, and it is indeed a huge bestseller. Set in 1994, the darkly comedic psychological thriller follows a trio of comics on a tour put together by a shady Winnipeg-based comedy broker through small-town Manitoba and Ontario. The situation goes from bad to worse to downright frightening and violent as they try and get off the road in one piece. Brent Butt joined me via Zoom from Vancouver. Congratulations on huge. Thank you. And you you mean the number one national best-selling huge? Uh, yes, yeah. so that, that, that's exactly the book that I'm referring to. And <laughs> yeah, that it, uh, surprised me. It, did it surprise you? I mean, it, yeah. people love you, and the idea that you know this book uh, would go unnoticed, I don't think was ever in the cards. Well, I didn't think that it would go unnoticed necessarily, but it was such a departure from what people know me for mm -hmm. and what people seem to like me for, which is being sort of a uh, an easygoing, funny guy. And this is such a dark, psychological, violent thriller that I thought it might turn some people off, but people jumped on board. So I was surprised. Well, you've kind of dipped your toe in this same kind of area in a much different way, but in the movie, No Clue, you know, there was a sort of a, a crime private detective thing happening there as well, yeah. which I, I think probably breathes some of the same air as huge. Yeah, No Clue. I always looked at No Clue as being a movie that worked without me saying funny stuff. There right. was it was a dark uh, mystery and uh, like a kind of a film noir, uh, an homage to film noir movies. And then my character just happened to be kind of incompetent in some areas and said funny things. So there was a layer of comedy to it. But you're right. It was a uh, it, it was a more serious uh, movie. And you say that uh, this has been on your bucket list for a very long time. Why did it take this long? Well, I was busy. I did a TV show, uh, a couple of TV series and some movies. So yeah. I was, I had, I really didn't have any time. Yeah. Um, I spent, you know, two and a half years pretty much exclusively writing scripts uh, and stand up. And um, when, when I wasn't doing those things, I didn't really feel like, tackling something bigger and the notion of a novel like you said it's always been on my radar for something i want to do but it i knew it was going to be a monumental task mm -hmm. and not something that i would wade into lightly um so yeah it just kind of sat on the the burner until until lockdown when they're sort of i had no excuses and as long as you can get past that first page, that's probably the most daunting part, right? When you boot up the computer and you just see that first blank page uh, sitting in front of you. I know I've written a number of books and that's always the hardest part for me. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that sort of due diligence, you know, being a professional writer thing, you know, you know the, it, it translates from scripts. Yeah. Like I, I'm able to sit down. And like, okay, I got to put in the hours today and I got to do the pages. So that part of it is in me. 
And then I actually found it kind of liberating to be able to write long form prose. Mm. See, the difference with the scripts is you can't, you know, you read, it's very structured, you know, certain things have to happen by a certain page count. And, um, you know, you can't write what characters are thinking or feeling very easily. Uh, you know, you're supposed to write what you can see and shoot as a director. And um, so with a novel, I found it, you know, I suddenly had all this freedom to to explore and freedom to talk about what characters were thinking or feeling. Um, and and I, I found it very liberating. I loved it. Were there books that you would say uh, influenced you or authors? I think definitely Stephen King. I mean, I, I love to read, you know, thrillers in general, but I also love to read thrillers that have a little bit of a scary bend to them. So, you know, I, I enjoy crime novels and I enjoy mysteries, but if there's something that has a little bit of a scare to it, I, I, I'm drawn to that. So, um, you know, definitely Stephen King and uh, Linwood Barclay is uh, somebody who I, I love to read. He is a master at this and uh, so prolific. Every time I turn around, we're Facebook friends. Every time I turn around, there's a new book on yeah. his Facebook page. It's wild. Yeah, he he puts them out one every year. And um, he was actually super nice. To, he read an early manuscript of my uh, novel, Huge, and he gave me some terrific, um, you know, constructive criticism, real concrete things to think about and, and, and look at and do differently. And uh, I'll always be grateful to that. And I love how your two worlds kind of collide in this. So you're following a trio of comics. Uh, they're going through small town Manitoba, uh, the rural comedy circuit. That must be uh, drawn from your experience. Yeah, absolutely. And especially considering it takes place in 1994, this story. So at that time, I was really, I hadn't really morphed into TV yet at all. My whole existence was just being in some rattly vehicle <laughs> you know, rumbling around southern Ontario or northern Manitoba or, you know, somewhere in the country. You're listening to Brent Butt on The Richard Krause Show. His novel, Huge, is available now wherever you buy fine books. Playing shows where they didn't really feel like there should be comedy and um, that kind of... So this is a throwback to that. I definitely pull from, from that experience. So what life was like on the road as a working comedian in the mid-90s. And, you know, you've got uh, shifty comedy bookers, which I'm sure uh, is something that you would have experienced along the way, not getting paid or all of a yeah. sudden, oh, you're getting paid in beer tonight, not money, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I always, there was one, there was one club where the guy always wanted to pay in Coke. And I was like. Like Dude, cocaine? I don't, even, or... I don't even, yeah. And I was like, I don't even smoke pot. How many times do we have to go through this? I'm like the, I'm like one of nine comedians in the country who don't do any drugs. So I'll just take the cash, please. I can't pay my rent with Coke. What it, are you doing? It would have been cheaper to pay you in cash, I would imagine, than pay you with yeah. cocaine. I don't know well, how much it cost back then, but. The thing about those guys dealing in the Coke, they don't, they're not famous for making good decisions, for being fiscally prudent. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And do you ever think back to those days, to the beginning days with a, a sort of nostalgia? Because there, there comes a time when you become as successful as you've become that things get a little easier. You know, people take your phone calls. You don't have to maybe hustle quite as hard as you did in 1994. But there's something that's kind of exhilarating about that hustle that you have to do. Do you ever think back on those days and, and 
sort of have romantic notions about them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm sort of a sucker for nostalgia to begin with. I'm very open to getting pulled back and looking at the the past with ruby, you know, ruby glasses on. And um so I'm sort of a natural sucker for that. But it's uh, I think it's an easy thing to do. It's a natural thing to do. And I wouldn't, you know, as difficult as all those those days were, I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, it was such a learning experience and such a toughening experience and character building. And just met some some guys who are still my best friends, you know, just from, you know, meeting up on the road and, and oh, you're the comedian I got to work with for this week. OK. And you become fast friends, lifelong friends in some instances. So I wouldn't change it for the world. So I, I often do look back and, um, you know, get get a little uh, not, not quite misty, but nostalgic. But at the, but if you said to me, OK, you could go back and have. No money and nobody know you. What do you think? I'd be like, mm, no thanks. Yeah, I'll just sit here and dream about it. Yeah, you can go back and do uh, like comedy gigs in buffet restaurants, and that's yeah. Sort of thing, you know. And yeah, like the uh, great comedian Chris Finn always used to refer to them as comedy against your will. When you would show up someplace and they'd be like, <laughs> and I put that into the book. There's a a, t a moment in the book where um. One of the comedians, Dale, walks up and he says to the bartender, I'm the comedian for tonight. And the bartender goes, ah, oh, man, is that tonight? That It's amazing how often that would happen. You know, you'd be in some roadhouse in Barry, and you're like, yeah, we're the comedians for tonight. And they'd be like, ah, oh, damn it. Really? <laughs> uh, now that this book has been so successful, are you working on another one? I am. I mean, I, I dove into another one right away because, oh. like I said, I did not expect to enjoy the process this much right. i really loved it and um i had another story that was sort of brewing in my head anyway so once huge was out in the world and in the hands of a publisher i dove into another book right away so i'm i'm well into my second one which and it's going to also be a a, a psychological thriller will it be called huger because i <laughs> think there's a certain amount of like manifest destiny that goes into calling a project like that huge it's going to be huge so we're going to call it huge <laughs> yeah well you know that's the, like one of the characters his stage name is hobie huge and he gives himself that name because that's what he, he's trying to manifest that destiny right i'm going to be huge but it's also you know i also call it huge because they're driving across canada which is a huge chunk of dirt and um yes yeah, just that sort of symbolic drive to to get big and to get well known but he's also hobie is also actually physically enormous mm -hmm. but um yeah it's uh it, the book i'm working on now is not a sequel but the publisher has asked i think because of the success of huge has asked if i have a sequel in mind and it feels perfect uh, to me for a movie as well yeah i think that sort of entrepreneurial side of me I have a hard time writing something that doesn't lend itself to, you know, there could be more if you want it. Listen, I, en I enjoy having a gig, you know? Well, and there's nothing wrong with making uh, stuff to entertain people. You know, yeah, I, 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 um, I always I'm said, if you boil everything away, I'm an entertainer, yep. whether I'm doing stand up or I'm uh, writing a goofy Christmas song or I'm writing novels or whatever it is. I, at the end of the day, I feel my job is to sort of distract and entertain. That was Brent Butt on The Richard Krause Show. Find his best-selling novel, Huge, wherever you buy fine books. In this segment, we meet the man who television critic John Doyle of The Globe and Mail said embodies Canada without the smugness. 
Rick Mercer is Canada's sharpest and funniest political satirist. He first came to fame with Show Me the Bottom, I'll Push It, or Charles Lynch Must Die, a one-man show that toured across Canada. He co-created and was the resident performer on CBC's This Hour Has 22 Minutes and was the host of the highly rated The Rick Mercer Report for 15 seasons. He is the co-chair of Spread the Net campaign dedicated to preventing the spread of malaria in Africa and has also campaigned for the Canadian Aid Society's The Walk for Life Project. His many honors include 21 Geminis and the Governor General's Performing Arts Award. Today, we talk about his latest project, a book titled The Road Years, a memoir continued. The book begins with the greenlighting of what would become the Rick Mercer Report. He's not in it for the metal. He has a floaty on. That is for kidney support. He's not in it for the glory. He's doing this for you, Canada. Dude. Rick Mercer Report. In our interview, we talk about taking drumming lessons from a Canadian legend. Okay, and I'm going to get a drum lesson? I'm going to teach you everything you need to know. This is going to be awesome. Okay, let's go. <laughs> His thoughts on defunding the CBC and Varney Ontario's The Train of Death. Rick Mercer, join me via Zoom. And I should point out that I wasn't in my usual studio when we did this interview. Rick sounds great, but I sound, well, like I'm on a Zoom call. But the interview is so much fun, I'm going to run the whole thing. Here's Rick Mercer. Um, congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. So the last memoir ended just as uh, the Mercer Report was beginning. So did you always have a thought of doing a second memoir about the show? Not even close, really. <laughs> when I started the first memoir, I did what I was told not to do, which is just start at the beginning. Multiple people told me that because I didn't know what I was doing. So I reached out to people who had done this thing. And they said, don't start from the beginning. Just jump around and tell stories you want to tell. I couldn't do that. I couldn't think of a single story I wanted to tell. So I started with when I was a kid and I just started moving up. And then eventually my editor said, okay, you've got a book. And it ended, as you say, just as I moved to Toronto, starting the Mercer Report. But even then, I didn't think there'd be a second book because I didn't know if the first one was any good or anyone would have any interest or anything. And then when it worked out, uh, I realized I liked this book writing business. And I realized I had a lot of runway. I had 15 years on the road. And the second book wouldn't be like the first one in the sense it's not so much about me. It's about people that I, I shot with, these crazy opportunities that I had, these stunts that I was involved with, all of those types of things. So this one was actually a lot more enjoyable to write. And how so? I mean, you talk about it uh, in those terms, about it being about other people and looking back at the show, but did it feel kind of like revisiting old friends? Was it cathartic in some way? What was it? Uh, I don't know about cathartic, but I'm not a very reflective guy. And there were moments where I almost had to stop and go out and walk around the block and reflect on the fact that that actually happened. Like Neil Peart, I took drumming lessons. I was going to ask you about this. Well, I took drum lessons in grade seven and grade eight so I could sound like Neil Peart. And then I quickly realized, well, that was never happening. And I retired the notion of being a rock star. But I spent a lot of time when I was in grade seven and grade eight behind the drum kit pretending I was a rock star. So the idea that 
Neil Peart would teach me drums on the Rush drum kit in the Rush secret cave is just an astounding turn of events for anyone. When did you first start playing drums? Uh, when I was 13, actually. My parents uh, gave you a drum, drum kit? lessons. Drum lessons. Drum no. lessons, no kit? And a pad, no, a little practice pad. Like one of those little rubber things. And then I would make uh, drum sets across my bed with magazines uh -huh. and then beat the covers off them. There's five cymbals and eight, you know. You'd have this that's with the Sayers catalog. A set like this, but made out of magazines. Why is that boy in that bedroom with the Sayers catalog again? <laughs> What's he doing in there? And for those who are familiar with Rush and Neil, who's no longer with us, sadly, but he was a very, I don't know, I won't say reclusive, but he was a very private person who had stepped away from being a rock star and had stepped away from being a public person at all, other than when he was playing in front of 100,000 people for Rush. But he didn't do the TV and the radio and the print. He just didn't do it. And so for him to agree to do the show was just wild and beyond my comprehension. Well, I love the way you write about it in the book. And it's the style that uh, that goes throughout the book. But it 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 sounds like you. It really feels like you yes, when you're thanks. reading the book, which is what you want as a writer. But I love the, the Rush chapter in particular, uh, talking about learning how to play the drums, because it's got real surprises in it. It's got that, where are my uh, stage drums? Oh, they're in LA. Bring them in, you know, send oh, yeah. them in. Which in. is exactly true. And, it, and the whole piece was starting out like we were so excited to get Neil and the location wasn't that great. And the drum yeah. kit wasn't that great. And he just happened to walk through when the, the scout was happening. And yeah said like, where's the Rush road kit? And John, <laughs> my director who was there, he said, the guy looked like, what do you mean where's the Rush road kit? I, I can't even imagine what it costs to bring the Rush road kit from Los I Angeles to Toronto in like yeah. four or five days. I, 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 I mean, we couldn't have done that. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, and then you you get your drum lesson, and you know the whole gag here is that he's got this enormous drum set. Your set is small. You start off on a motorcycle. He's driving a a big motorcycle. You're driving essentially what is a scooter. So it's, you know there, there's visually yeah. very funny stuff here. But then you're you're in the the, the rush cave, the bat cave, and look, there's lights. It's all of a sudden it's like a rock show in there. Oh sure. And my inner fourteen year old, like would have traded places with you in a heartbeat sure. just to yeah, experience I was that. to get that across because, yeah. and it's a universal thing. Yeah. Hoping at grade seven and grade eight that you could be as great as Rush or the Rolling Stones or whoever. That's a universal wannabe a rock star thing. You're listening to Rick Mercer on The Richard Krauss Show. His new book, The Road Years, A Memoir Continued, is available wherever you buy fine books. And I do talk about musicians a fair bit in the book, or a little bit anyway, because mm -hmm. there is that thing when you're lucky enough to be in show business, as you know, in Canada, it's a pretty small industry. So it's not like the TV people are regulated just to the TV people. You do cross paths with the rock stars. And I think all of us have a special thrill, at least I do, crossing paths with the rock stars more so than a movie star or yeah anyone else in the business because well the rock stars are the rock stars let's face it <laughs> they've got the best job in the world well you say in the book too on this topic that uh you don't think that there will ever be bands like rush or like the tragically hip that that become part of like the fabric of the come uh, of the country uh again 
Yeah, well, the yeah. world has changed. And I'm not saying that that we won't produce great bands and mm-hmm. as great as Rush or the Tragically Hip, just like we'll produce great songwriters as great as Joni and Neil and mm-hmm. Ron Sexsmith. But we live in this odd time. My friend Greg Eckler always points out, we live in this time where an act can come to Toronto, say, and sell out Massey Hall for three nights. But everyone who knows that act and loves that act they're going to Massey Hall. Nobody else in the city knows who they are. And I think we've all had that experience where we go, who's that? And what are they? They're selling out Massey Hall for three. I've never even heard of them. And this is the world now. There's not a, it's not a monoculture and that's a good thing. But yeah. I don't think there's any bands that every person in grade 10 is going to be listening to. And I find that I live around the corner from the, you know, the Danforth Music Hall. And I was going to mention this. Yeah, you see the names. I don't know the names. That's one thing. And that, that's, you know, I'm in my 50s now. So why should I know most of the names? But what I find interesting is, is um, you drive by and it's lined up down the block and it's East Indian kids. Right. Or you line up down the block and it's Asian kids or you line it's down, down the block and it's like, you know, 17 year old girls. It's it's they all have their own acts. So there's fewer <laughs> of those bands that everyone knows. But that's just the way it is. You talk about uh, rock stars and meeting musicians, I, you know, just on, on on a different note. I got to go to Gordon Lightfoot's house. And, right. you know, you're, you're in the house, and he just happened to casually uh, be standing, and this is where I caught him when I first met him, next to a life-size poster of himself advertising his Carnegie Hall gigs. And I thought, this is, you know, th- th- this is the way to meet Gordon Lightfoot right here. Yeah. yeah together, I love how me. you just said, I got to go to Gordon Lightfoot's house. Yeah. It's not like, well, at my job today, I went to go. No, I got to go. Yeah. I got to go to Gordon Lightfoot's house. And I, I feel that way about so many things that I did on the show. Sure, there's a lot of work and we didn't stop traveling for 15 years and this, that and the other thing. But there were so many times where we looked at each other and I mean, myself and the crew, and yeah. we would be looking at each other and without saying it, cause we'd be playing it cool. Like, can you believe where we are? Can you believe what we're about to do? And uh, that's, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good way to make a living. Uh, when you first started the show, uh, you wanted to emphasize the positive yeah. and really, and, and, and do a different kind of uh, show. Tell me a little bit about why that felt so important to you at the time because I could only imagine that now it would be even more important uh, to you because things have gotten so much more negative in the world. Yeah, it was just, it was very much my partner, Gerald Lanz. It was his directive in many ways. And he said, he said to me, he said, you're better when you're positive. And the thing is, it's a, not a natural thing for comedians to do or people in comedy. It just isn't. And it doesn't necessarily make for good comedy. Like when you're a kid and you're getting laughs, it's not because you're celebrating the teacher or celebrating the rules or celebrating the school. It's all about tearing it down. And then if you can go up the food chain and, and make a joke at the expense of the principal, then then you're a hero. And so it just doesn't come naturally. And and writers and comedians who worked with us over the years they would find it really tough there'd be a learning curve but we had a philosophy and there was a writer greg eckler who i mentioned he came to work with us and he actually came to work after a couple of years and i always wanted to work with him and 
he asked me in a question, he said, you know, what's the philosophy of the show? And I and I couldn't think of one. I didn't really have one. It wasn't like Citizen Kane where I wrote it up on the wall. But what I came up with was we don't shit on Thunder Bay. Right. Like if we're going to go there, we're going to talk about why it's so great. And that goes for the oil sands, too, by the way. If we're going to Fort Mac, we're going to talk about that town and, and show the sense of community they have and and see how they're surviving against like in in difficult times and and we're just going to celebrate and we're going to do that wherever we go and and for you know some big city writers living in toronto and we're going to some small town festival they could easily go the other way Mm -hmm. but we wouldn't allow that we just wouldn't if if we were going to celebrate if we were going to do it we're going to celebrate it and i'm not you know i'm not going to the 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 motions with blinders on. I, I I like to read Canadian history. I know there's all sorts of things that Canada has done that we're not proud of. I know that we've misstepped along the way. I know there's things that we have to make amends for. I I understand all those things, but I'm not willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, mm-hmm. well, I'm not celebrating Canada and, uh, uh, you know, we're an evil construct or anything like that. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating. And certainly there's nothing wrong with taking 30 minutes out of your week in prime time and doing it which is what we were all about. Well, I think that's part of the thing that made the show uh, so popular. I know when I was growing up in Nova Scotia, we never really saw Liverpool, Nova Scotia, or Nova Scotia represented particularly on television. And when we did, it's because the fisheries were dying or the, you know, whatever it was. We never had stories that that uh, created a, a sense of, you know, that's great. We're on television because we've got a great pumpkin festival and Rick Mercer's coming down to uh, yeah. to uh, uh, do a piece on it. And I think that's important. And I think that's where the show really struck a chord with Canadians. Well, thanks. One of the greatest things that happened to me, and it's funny, I don't think it's in the book, is I was pretty well known when we started the show. And in the er- like the first year of the show, I'd be in a small town and some kids would see me and they'd see the TV equipment and stuff and they'd say what are you doing here that way the kids view their town what are you doing here you're listening to rick mercer on the richard krauss show his new book the road years a memoir continued is available wherever you buy fine music and then about a year and a half in i was in the in the middle of of british columbia like central british columbia in a small town and i came out of this store and there was a couple of kids hanging around there and one of them looked at me and said i knew you'd show up eventually and i was like yes how great is that like he actually knew what was coming and uh the other time that someone said i knew you were here we showed up in in louisburg i think in in nova scotia and uh i think it was and uh i was interviewing people and i said what are you doing here and he said i came to see you i said what do you mean you came to see me i I only got here two hours ago i didn't even know i was coming until Yesterday, how did you know I was here? He said, my mom heard about it at the liquor store. <laughs> so I, I'm so glad that people knew I was coming. <laughs> well, in the book, you sarcastically call yourself a national treasure. But in your heart, I think well, you know it's yes, true. very sarcastic. <laughs> very, very sarcastic. Um, let's talk about um, the the way that comedy has changed a little bit. So in the book, you refer to a time when, quote, you could use a term like founding fathers and not get hissed at. Um, Do you think that the show would be different if it was starting today? Um, 
I think it would be wild that I would have a hard time uh, navigating these these particular times because, uh, you know, pretty early on in the show, again, I I started I got mail one time when I made some sort of comment joke that could be interpreted as risque, and I got emails from people saying, "Geez, Rick, what do you say that for? I'm watching with my ten year old. Come on." And my reaction was like, what are you doing watching with your 10-year-old, dude? Like, we're not a children's show. And then I realized, well, we're not a children's show, but good God, I think we're a family show. And then we made a conscientious decision to never say anything on the show that would create the reaction again, that would get people embarrassed in front of their kids or kids embarrassed in front of their parents. And as a result, a lot of jokes hit the floor. There's no doubt about it, but it was a decision we made. And... So I didn't really run into those situations where people are would be saying, "Oh, you can't say that, you can't say that," because we were we were very much a family show. But uh, I bet we would run into it now. Yeah, like mm. if you drop the the phrase, you know, our founding fathers. Good lord, incoming, incoming. How do you respond to the wave of defund the CBC uh, things that seems to clutter up my Twitter feed? It breaks my heart. The first book. My first book, Talking to Canadians, very much is like a love letter to the CBC. Yeah. I'm only saying that because that will send hundreds of thousands of people running to the bookstore. <laughs> I didn't know it was a love letter to the CBC. Honey, I'm going to Indigo. Um, but it was a love letter to the CBC because I, the CBC had a profound impact on me, especially the regional programming that was happening yeah. in Newfoundland. And what you talk about, not seeing yourself. Well, the biggest show in Newfoundland for seven, eight years, literally the biggest show at all was a local CBC program called the Wonderful Grand Band. It Mm. wasn't Knott's Landing or Dallas or any of those big American shows. This show got way more viewers. The biggest stars in the universe came from Newfoundland. So it was it was it was seminal. It was such a and I I, as a kid, I would dream of being on the CBC. Um, And so it was it was a dream come true that I got a national show. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I bemoan the direction of the CBC in many ways, I would never defund the CBC, but it used to be if you, if you had a show in the CBC or you worked there or worked with them, a pastime would be sit around and say, what would you do if, if you were in charge? Right. Of course, all organizations are like that to a certain extent. And uh, I would do things very, very differently. I think the the CBC speaks to people when uh, they they focus on the local and they they embrace the regions and they don't make all their decisions through the lens of downtown Toronto. I think that's uh, I believe that in my heart of hearts and it breaks my heart to see someone like Pierre Poilier uh, talk about defunding the CBC. But I understand why because. He got an applause break on that promise in St. John's, Newfoundland. And I can guarantee you five years ago or 10 years ago, I don't care who you were or what party you were. If you stood up in Newfoundland and suggested that you were going to touch the CBC, it would be a third rail. Because in Newfoundland, the CBC is the fisheries broadcast, which is so important. It's land and sea, which is so important. All of these regional things. but And a newscast that was a juggernaut. um, And all of those things are in many ways shells of their former selves and as a result people are clapping when they hear that so it breaks my heart i don't want to go down that road too much 
But uh, yes, put me in charge. I'll turn all that around. Uh, do you ever have, or did you ever have, uh, buyer's remorse? You talk about that a little bit in the book. Uh, when you're on one of these stories, I'm thinking of Vernie Ontario's The Train of Death. Uh, but you, you're in the middle of it, and you think, oh, this might not have been a great idea. This week, the Mercer Report hits the Bernie Motor Speedway and finds out what it takes to compete in something they call the train of death. Bernie walks! That was awesome. You did great, right? That was awesome. <laughs> oh, man, and if I ever do another death-related sport again, you're my teammates. All right. Go, Bernie. Woo! The train of death was actually the one time that I really, well, never mind buyer's remorse, I thought I could I could be killed here or I yeah. could be seriously injured. You're listening to Rick Mercer on The Richard Krause Show. His new book, The Road Years, A Memoir Continued, is available wherever you buy fine books. Uh, everything I did that people thought, my God, you're so brave, you, you know, that, that was so dangerous. Most things weren't because I would be with the people, the best people in the business. Like, yeah, I jumped out of a plane twice, but I was tied to a Canadian soldier. And I'm assuming they gave me a good one. And <laughs> so, it, but Bernie Ontario, the train of death, I mean, the thing was, I didn't know how to operate the brakes. There was a thing. Anyway, the train of death is three cars chained together. The first one has an engine, no brakes. The middle one has no engine, no brakes. The one in the back has no engine and does have brakes. There's probably 15 or 20 feet of chain yeah. in between each one. And it is just insane. And so they got, they said, we're going to take you out for a test run. And within minutes, I was out of control. The I couldn't, couldn't steer. I couldn't counter steer. The brakes, when I hit the brakes, it just locked up and whipped around and smashed into the car in front of me. I was, I was terrified. And I actually, I completely forgot, of course, I was mic'd. Um, and it was my cameraman who was shooting. He immediately knew that uh, how serious trouble I thought I was in because I swore and he knew there was no circumstances that I would ever swear yeah. on camera uh, and risk blowing a take. So he turned to our director, my director, and said, I think he's going to die. But he kept shooting. <laughs> God bless him. And then Johnny managed to get that the, the race stopped and I was I just just it was terrifying and and I had this also I had this this realization that I, I would have died doing the train of death and that would be like a punchline I was like it'd be a punchline death oh Rick Mercer died. oh that's terrible how did he die he was doing something called the train of death and you know people would just find that hysterical yeah and, you know and it would be on my own fault really he died doing the train of death how tragic he never saw that coming. That was Rick Mercer on The Richard Krause Show. His new book, The Road Years, A Memoir Continued, is available wherever you buy fine music. I've got a couple of minutes at the end of the show, so I wanted to tell you about the Trans-Canada Highwaymen. They're a new band consisting of four of this country's best rock singer-songwriters. There's Sloan's Chris Murphy, From the Odds, Craig Northey, and former Bare Naked Ladies frontman Stephen Page, alongside Mo Berg of The Pursuit of Happiness, who joins me now to talk about their new album, Trans-Canada Highwaymen Explosive Hits Number 1, which is available now wherever fine music music is sold. The album is made up of covers of Canadian AM rock radio hits from the 1960s and 70s, and it is super fun. 
I asked Mo how he chose the songs he sang on the album, Pretty Lady by Lighthouse, Raised on Robbery by Joni Mitchell, and Edward Bear's You, Me, and Mexico. I wanted to do Pretty Lady because it's one of my favorite songs of all time, actually. I love that song. And uh, and then uh, there was idea, we should do a Joni Mitchell song. Let's get Mo to do Raised on Robbery because it's kind of a rocker and it's not as, right. and it was a single and, you know, people will know it. I think that was an idea. And I, I mean, I'm a huge Joni Mitchell fan, so I was very willing to take on the Joni Mitchell song. And uh, and then Yumi in Mexico had a funny story that um, I was in a band with Chris before. And it was just a fun band. We didn't actually play any shows. It was just a ch- chance to get together and play with a couple of our friends, uh, Kevin Hilliard and Barry Walsh. And we used to play Yumi in Mexico and we used to sing it. And we, and we sort of, we kind of made it a bit funny the way we did it. And I said, we should just revive that because I think it was a, it was fun to do the song. I'll have the full interview with Mo Berg talking about the Trans-Canada Highwaymen and their new album, Explosive Hits Number 1, in a couple of weeks. Stay tuned. It's a good one. Big thanks to Mo for stopping by. Big thanks to Rick Mercer. Check out his book, The Road Years, A Memoir Continued. Big thanks to Brent Butt. His book, Huge, is available now wherever you buy fine books. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) 